to the Model Railway Show, the online short line to a better understanding of the richly textured hobby of model railroading. I'm Jim Martin. And I'm Trevor Marshall. Our passengers for this journey are Callback's Tony Custer and Jeff Young of Garden Railways magazine. We're keeping Tony busy these days. A while back, Jim spoke with him about the 25th anniversary of his Trains of Thought column in Model Railroader magazine. In just a moment, I will be speaking to Tony about a much-anticipated annual event, the release of the latest edition of Model Railroad Planning, the 2011 version. And later in the show, I'll chat with Jeff, who's the live steam columnist for Garden Railways. We'll ask him about the attraction of lighting up in the garden and what live steam enthusiasts do to amuse themselves when the snow is on the ground. But first on the Model Railway Show, here's Trevor. Go back a couple of decades and you'll find that layout design typically involved picking a plan out of a book. 101 track plans was always my favorite. And then having at it, hammer and tongs. Most of us built train sets, not miniature versions of real railways. That's changed over time, and one of the reasons for that change is Model Railroad Planning, the annual design magazine from Combat Publishing. It's not the only source of design information out there, but model railroad planning is arguably the best known. And since that first issue was published in 1995, it has done a great service to the hobby by popularizing sophisticated concepts and introducing the best design practices to a broad audience. The new 2011 issue of Model Railroad Planning is now out, and its editor, well-known modeler and author Tony Custer, is back with us to talk about what you'll find inside. Welcome back to the Model Railway Show, Tony. Well, thanks, Trevor. It's a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you again, and I really appreciate the kind words uh, about Model Railroad Planning. Now, you've been the editor of this magazine since that first issue in 1995, and I assume you had a lot to do with the creation of the publication. Why did you want to bring Model Railroad Planning to a broader audience? Well, the concept uh, was not something that I was involved in right at the start. In fact, Jim Kelly was going to be the editor of it when Kalmbach came up with the idea, and Jim then became managing editor of MR and didn't have time. And meanwhile, Doug Gurren of the uh, Layout Design Special Interest Group had gotten some word that Kalmbach had put out feelers with dealers to see how a magazine of that type might sell. And one of the conversations was overheard by a SIG member who called Doug, who called me. And I checked in with Kalmbach and said, hey, I'd like to be a part of this. And they said, well, funny thing, your name had just come up. And they had not at that time ever worked with an editor who wasn't in the office, but they knew I knew magazine and uh, the hobby. So they took a chance, and I think it worked out pretty well for both of us. Now, you coined the term layout design element in that first issue, and LDEs have been a regular feature every year since. For those listeners who aren't familiar with the concept, can you give us the 30-second elevator ride about what an LDE is and why you feel they're so useful? An LDE is defined as a model of a specific prototype place, and the model needs to be both operationally and scenically representative of the prototype. My goal here was to get people to quit reinventing the wheel and trying to design from scratch every yard, every town, every everything. I thought, well, instead, if you go to the prototype and find some interesting examples, and then you kind of connect the dots with, as the Brits call it, the twisty bits, you might have a better shot at coming up with something that works. And the really neat part of it is that as a prototype modeler, there's towns on the nickel plate where to this day, I don't understand what every track did. But by following the prototype, 
prototype, when I finally figure it out or somebody explains it to me, the railroad will have been sitting there saying, oh, it's about time you figured this out and we'll be ready to go. You featured these layout design elements every year in the magazine. What are readers going to find for LDEs in the 2011 issue? Most of the features have some ties to that. I don't think we've labeled any of them exactly that way this year, which is an interesting oversight. But so many of them are tied to it. For example, the cover story is about an L-shaped apartment layout, and the story that follows directly behind it is about an L-shaped home office layout. And the main idea there is that you can use the wall space above a bookcase or put it kind of suspended and in no way compromise either the aesthetics or the usability of the room. But both of these are based on real locations. Uh, Ken Lehman built a piece of the Southern and he combined two towns into one, which is not violating the LDE principle. Keith Jordan took uh, the Santa Fe's so-called Patch Industrial District in Los Angeles and used that as the basis for his layout. And we also have a piece by Paul Dolkos on all kinds of distinctive themes. Ian Rice talks about a Maine-based railroad. David Pop, who's MR's managing editor today, uh, extended his New Haven N-scale layout, and he talks about how he discovered more and more about the prototype, and it kept adding interest. And Joe Atkinson brings us up to date with a piece about modeling a modern regional, the Iowa Interstate. He got me so interested, I actually went out to Iowa with Bill Darnaby and Perry Squire to take a look at the Iowa Interstate. And so it's nice that a magazine can even motivate its editor. And the last three features I'll cite is that uh, Don Ball talked about a 1895 California railroad called the Stockton and Copperopolis. And Art Cooperstein talks about the Mon Pa, world-famous short line. And we round out the issue with a piece uh, by Rich Loveman about the CP and C in modern times, and Bob Hamner talks about iron ore railroading. So all those are based on the prototype and in, in that way are really ties to layout design elements. Now, those are obviously, as you say, all based on prototypes, and that is a design concept that model railroad planning has advocated through the years. What other concepts do you feel the magazine has done its best to cover and popularize? I think the main thing is perhaps very much like my trains of thought column and MR is just to get you to rethink things. I can kind of challenge challenge you in the privacy of your own home and you don't have your keyboard right in front of you so you can fire off a nasty reply to tell me to mind my own business. And we can put all this in front of you and make you think that, hey, this author seems to be a pretty sharp person and he's got views or she's got views that are very different than mine and maybe I ought to take a little time and think about that. And that's really what the magazine is. It was such a pleasure for me to have this chance to do this because when I was at of RMC, Bill Schaumburg and I were the art staff as well, and we didn't have time to do fancy graphics and draw track plans and all that back in those days, and so we would maybe redraw one of Bill Shop's track plans that were definitely old school to make it look better, but here's a chance to edit a magazine with the super skills of Kalmbach's art department and uh, their editorial team and really not only come up with great ideas, but have a way of illustrating these ideas in a way that just no other publication even comes close to. You've been an advocate of good layout design for as long as I can remember. It's been a recurring theme in many of your articles and in your trains of thought column. You must have seen it all by now, but are there any pleasantly innovative surprises in the articles that were submitted for this year's edition? Well, I think there's always a surprise, and you're going to find that in almost everything that appears in an MRP, that there's going to be some twist, 
something new. For example, something very simple in both lead articles about L-shaped layouts, Ken Lehman had to put it in his living room in an apartment, and their aesthetics are important, so he just put it on top of IKEA bookshelves. Very easy. You got all the bench work done, but that meant you also had to worry about the wiring and where the control system was because it couldn't just be anywhere. And Keith Jordan said the same thing about his home office layout. He didn't want wires hanging down. The lighting had to be neatly arranged. Everything had to be done in a way that complemented his very professional home office. And I think that that, those kind of lessons apply to all of us because we're always saying, gee, I don't have room for a railroad. And it turns out that your home office and your living room are very suitable places for it if you just handle it right and have an understanding spouse or maybe you're living by yourself. And if you don't handle it right, you might be living by yourself. That's right. <laughs> now, design We're, publications, are they're different from others in the hobby. They often deal with concepts that haven't been tested, so there's not often a layout to photograph to help explain what the author is describing. When it's an idea without a layout to back it up, what do you look for in a submission to help you decide whether it's ready for model railroad planning? We try to have a balance of things that are just ideas, things that are under construction, and maybe things that have reached a very mature stage. And the reason for that is that once something reaches a mature stage, a whole bunch of things have been edited out. In other words, compromises have been made. Whereas when it's in the idea stage, there may be some pretty far off the wall kind of ideas. The very fact that it hasn't been tested, it hasn't been proven, means that there's going to be some things in there that that you just wouldn't get after it's been through the meat grinder of of reality. Now, that said, if it's too far out of line and something really critical is missing, we're going to go back and say, hey, let's rethink this and take another shot at it and let's uh, maybe look at it again for next year. Tony, thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to chatting with you again one day soon. Tony Custer is the editor of the Model Railroad Planning Annual from Comback Publishing. The 2011 edition is now on sale. Good to have Tony back. Trevor, I heard Tony mention the meat grinder of reality. I think I'm going to have my wife, Cheryl, needlepoint that phrase for me so I can hang it above my layout. Some of my favorite aspects of model railroading are the planning and conceptualizing. But it doesn't matter how much planning I try to do. Once the project is underway, new unforeseen problems crop up, and with them, the inevitable changes necessary to make things work. But model railroad planning, along with John Armstrong's timeless book, Track Planning for Realistic Operation, have both kept me out of a lot of additional trouble. You know, there are so many great resources for layout design information these days, and model railroad planning has done a lot to popularize the most innovative layout design ideas in the hobby. The new issue is definitely worth a look. And we're doing our bit to popularize ideas, too. If you'd like additional information on the topics we discuss, be sure to check out our website, themodelrailwayshow.com, for the links related to this program. Next up, it may not be the Donner Pass, but just how catastrophic is a little snow in the garden when you're trying to run with live steam? And what's the special attraction of little trains that run by boiling water? To find out, here's Jim with his guest. Jeff Young writes the live steam column in Garden Railways magazine, and like a lot of us, Jeff writes best under pressure. (laughs) But in his case, it's about 40 to 70 pounds per square inch. And while it's always summer somewhere out there on the World Wide Web, Jeff, like us, is currently suffering through the white chilly season we politely call winter. And we're guessing that winter could be a downtime for all but the hardiest of uh, live steam operators. Anyway, we're going to ask him and find out about the hobby of live steam model railroading. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Great to be here, Jeff. Well, since we've brought it up, what do 
live steamers do in the cold weather? I, I've seen pictures of backyard railroads in the snow. Uh, would they be steam or electric? Probably both, but the, the live steamers tend to be a hardy bunch. We do like to run in the winter, and one of the reasons is you get some really nice exhaust plumes in cold air, some really rather spectacular plumes, which uh, you can actually know it's a live steam engine with, with that. <laughs> cold weather does prevent a, 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 from longer runs. It is uh, colder. It takes longer to boil the water, so there's a little bit of a downside, and your fingers do get a little chilly, but uh, to me, it's worth it to go out and see engines running through the snow, and as prototypes did, they ran all year, and even I've even plowed snow with live steam. <laughs> I'll bet they make pretty good hand warmers, do they? Yes, they do. Yeah, have, you, have you hugged your steamer lately, Jeff? Yes, yeah. I'll, I'll continually, Jim. <laughs> So it's it's not quite like the gardeners hovering over their seed catalogs. You actually get to keep your hand in over winter. It's not the downtime I thought there might be. But still, you know, it, it, you get a really, really nasty day. It draws you inside rather than going outside. The nice warmth of the shop. Well, enough of this talk about the weather. Let's find out a little bit more about the live steam hobby. What's the attraction of live steam for you? I think it adds another uh, dimension of realism, uh, being able to uh, pull a steam engine out, uh, fire it up, maintain the pressure. It, it adds to me just another dimension of realism. And having a, uh, a train that is a prototype of a steam engine, actually boiling water, making steam, and moving the pistons in the cylinders just completes the whole ambiance or atmosphere for me. That, that's my personal view of it. I haven't asked yet. What do you run? What, what have you got in the backyard? Uh, I have a dual-gauge layout, both gauge O and gauge 1, uh, because of a variety of scales. I uh, work on, like, rubber gauges. I'm a rubber scale guy in live steam. Primarily, it's 16 millimeters equal 1 foot, so it's 2 foot gauge narrow-gauge trains running on O-gauge track, primarily of Welsh prototypes. So that's one of them. That's what got me into the hobby some 30 years ago. Uh, and it's very popular in the UK. Also on O-gauge, I run O-gauge model, mid-scale live steam, Bassett Lauk from 30s and 50s, vintage model. On gauge one, I run 124th scale models of the Hunso Lake Bay's line, little lineup in Canada. I'm also doing a little bit, even it's more confusing, my wife is in 7.8 modeling and uses the gauge one track for 7.8 scale models of two-foot gauge uh, trains. So a lot of scales using two gauges and all live steam where possible. Wow, I've got to get up and see that sometime. I'd yeah, love to have yeah. you. Do the garden railway enthusiasts differentiate themselves from the folks who have the big uh, 1 12th or 1 8th scale ride-on steamers? Absolutely, and it come at it from a couple ways. The, the ride-on guys are more interested in just the locomotive and being hauled around on a track or hauling their friends around. Well, I always view that our scale of live steam is sort of the middle ground. You have the smaller scale folks that have a very detailed scale railway and models and the whole scene, the scenery. This is sort of, to me, the, the ideal sweet spot as it is between the two. I can have live steam, which you have in the larger scales, and bring those components from a scale model railway, particularly in the garden, through scenery and so forth, and scale models of rolling stock. So it combines both of them in that. Um, our engines are a little bit uh, different in terms of complexity. Um, some would say more, some would say less. Um, I think you tend to uh, have smaller parts to deal with, and you can add the dimension of having them radio control. You're not riding behind them, although some people have ridden behind gauge one engines, but mechanically they're probably pretty much identical. You mentioned radio control. Is that the preferred way of running these things rather than trying to stick your fingers down in the cab? It's split between 
between the two, uh, what you'll find is the throttles on live steamers are very sensitive uh, to gradients. So you have to, con if you have a, a railroad with a lot of grades on it, you'll have to constantly be adjusting the throttle to get the right amount of steam to maintain speed up and down the grade. So that lends itself if you have a railroad with gradient uh, radio control. And it's very easy. You radio control both on the throttle and the direction on the steam engine. And some engines even come from the factory with radio control installed. Okay. The other camp is manual control. If you have a, a level railroad, you can set the throttle and the engine can just chug around on its own without very much adjustment. I tend to favor manual control because if I'm in tweaking with the engine, adjusting the gas flow or shoveling coal, I like that hands-on element of it. It just, again, adds another dimension from the realism. Uh, you back an engine into a siding, you throw the switch, you couple the, car, the wagons or cars together, and you can give the engine a little more fuel and set the direction and off it goes running. If uh, someone with lots of indoor electric railroading experience starts planning a live steam line for the backyard, what kind of adjustments are they going to have to make to their knowledge about layout planning? You've mentioned gradients already as, as a real operational consideration. Anything else? The one thing you have to take into account, Jim, is have a, a what we call a steaming bay. Um, in prototype parlance, it's probably locomotive ready track or roundhouse or shed. You have to have a siding at a comfortable height to be able to prepare your engine before the run. You know, put the fuel in it, put water in it, lubricate the chassis. So that's a consideration is to have a, a good space to do that. And if you have a lot of friends over, you have enough room for everybody to have their engines going and maintaining them. The, the maintenance, getting an ready for the run and doing the maintenance afterwards is an interesting component of part of the live steam hobby that I think a lot of the electrical people probably aren't familiar with. But to me, it's part of the fun and it's very prototypical. It's from the steam railroading days. There was a lot of time ready to get a locomotive ready for service and to put it to bed after a, after a run. So that becomes a significant part of any operating session. Did you do operations like the indoor guys? Yes, exactly. Um, I'm sort of more of, I'd rather sit in the lawn chair with a cool drink and watch it go around. Yeah, you're my man. It's kind of the lazy man's approach, but um, I have been part of groups where you do operation, timetable and train order on a live steam garden railway uh, layout, doing switching. The added dimension is you've got to be mindful of how much run you get out of a live steamer and stopping there and doing the, in the tender and that sort of locomotive maintenance as part of the whole keeping back of the switching order in your head. It's fun. It, it really is yeah. an interesting experience. Now, you're literally playing with fire here. How dangerous can these be for the unwary? Is burn ointment well, part of the toolkit, for example? Uh, okay, I do, we call ourselves the Burnt Finger Brigade, and most of the engines today have enough places where you can pick them up uh, without burning your fingers, but common sense must prevail. You are playing, literally, like you yeah. say, Jim, playing with fire. Um, a lot of people worry about boiler explosions, but the pressure and the volume of steam under pressure is very small, so you are exempt from a lot of the boiler mm -hmm. testing and requirements of the larger-scale locomotives. Okay. Having said that, the manufacturing industry is very sound and very reputable in all sorts of testing terms of testing yeah. pressure vessels before they're shipped out to the customers. Alcohol firing is another dimension where you're using wick burners. You have to be wet. Sometimes alcohol spill out of the burners in the tanks, and it does burn invisibly in the sunlight. So you can singe your fingers. But it's a very safe hobby, you know, and a lot of people get their, their children involved at a very mm -hmm. early age, and I've seen eight- and ten-year-olds doing a bang-up job of running live steamers. You're a member of the 16-millimeter association. What's the value of uh, being part of that group? The 
Steam Mill Association probably were the stalwarts of live steam through the 70s and 80s, where there was very much, very little available, very much of a focus on other gauges and scales for narrow gauge modeling. These folks in the UK uh, banded together and dealt with the early live steamers of that scale, and uh, you know some of them were not as reliable, but an industry sprung up around those, and there's great uh, exchange of information. It's an organization based in the UK. The other bit is they do uh, serialized articles on building our own engine castings and, and drawings are available. Now, you mentioned your wife, Dawn. You met her through live steam. I understand yes. she got an unusual engagement ring. Yes, uh, my, my wife, Dawn, is, is also an avid live steamer. We met at an annual steaming event in the States. Her engagement ring was a live steam locomotive, her favorite locomotive, a Darjeeling B-class from the famous Darjeeling and Himalayan two-foot gauge railway. And she is also uh, learning the joys of coal-firing. We just got a coal-fired locomotive of her own. <laughs> Great story. Jeff, we're out of time, but thanks for the primer on garden variety live steam. Uh, I hope to get over, as I mentioned, get over to your way sometime and see what you're up to. Love to have you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Jeff Young. Jeff writes the live steam column in Garden Railways magazine from the Comback Publishing Company. Ah, nothing says I love you quite like a Darjeeling B-class steam locomotive. You know, love's never hotter than when it's boiled and pressurized. Well, that's our show for this time around, but as we speak, another is in the works. Next time on the Model Railway Show, I'll talk with modeler Seth Newman. Switching on his layout is dominated by a huge industry, and we'll find out why that's an idea you might want to consider. And I'll be speaking with Jason Schron of Rapido Trains about how his quest for perfection has become legendary among the large, ready-to-run manufacturers. In closing, a reminder... Be sure to check out the links related to our interviews on themodelrailwayshow.com and find us on Facebook. A big salute to the three amigos, Dave Woodhead for the original music, Otto Vondrak for our web design, and Chris Abbott, who wrangles the electrons for us. For Jim Martin, I'm Trevor Marshall. Thanks for joining us on The Model Railway Show. Music